MadClaire.com presents Episode 3 of Chasing the Dragon. Episode 3 of Chasing the Dragon, a podcast about my first foray into Advanced Dungeons and Dragons 1st Edition. My name is Jason Wood. You may know me as the Mad Cleric, a past writer for MadAdventurers.com, and currently for my own site, MadCleric.com. Tomorrow, July 27th, would have been Gary Gygax's 78th birthday had he not passed away some eight and a half years ago. So I thought it might be appropriate tonight to focus on the man himself and to have him as my guest by way of his books. If you talk to any first edition player, you'll learn that much of the draw to those books and to that game is what I'd like to call the Gygaxian tone. There's something unique in the way that Gary wrote uh, that sets it apart from every other other RPG book out there. Even when one of his books isn't well organized or even that exciting, you can still tell it's Gary Gygax and that in and of itself is enjoyable. So in honor of our dearly departed Dungeon Master, I thought I'd read some selections from Gygax's works that give us a good feel for his tone. I want to start with a selection from the Player's Handbook. I'm reading from the seventh printing. I don't, actually don't know if that has any effect on the page numbers or not, uh, but from the seventh printing, page five, right there in the preface. So, so he's been talking about how the Advanced Dungeons and Dragons project is moving forward. He began with the Monster Manual. Now he's moved into the latter part of development by writing the the Player's Handbook and the Dungeon Master's Guide. So talking about these last two works, he says, This latter part of the Advanced Dungeons, Dungeons and Dragons project I approached with no small amount of trepidation. After all, the game's major appeal is to those persons with unusually active imagination and superior active intellect. A very demanding audience indeed. Furthermore, a great majority of readers master their own dungeons and are necessarily creative, the most critical audience of all. Authoring these works means that, in a way, I have set myself up as final arbiter of fantasy role-playing in the minds of the majority of D&D adventurers. Well, so be it, I rationalized. Who better than the individual responsible for it all as creator of the fantasy supplement and chainmail, the progenitor of D&D, and as the first proponent of fantasy gaming and a principal in TSR, the company one thinks of when fantasy games are mentioned? The credit and blame rests ultimately here. Some last authority must be established for a very good reason. Uh, <laughs> Gary, in his own way, uh, accepts the crown of the ultimate dungeon master here. And I find this fascinating because, in a way, it sounds as though Gary didn't think of himself as a writer. He didn't think of himself as a game designer. He thought of himself as a dungeon master. And much of these books and rules and campaigns and settings all grew out of just him playing games with his children and with his friends. But, you know, if the buck's got to stop somewhere, why not with him, after all? He is the original Dungeon Master. But this whole relationship that that Gary has with the idea of the DM and with other Dungeon Masters uh, grows as the books go on. I'd like to read a couple sections from the Dungeon Master's Guide where Gary talks directly to uh, Dungeon Masters. I'm reading from the sixth beta printing. Again, I don't know what effect that has on the page numbers, but this is actually the very first words um, in the book 
uh, from the preface uh, written by Mr. Gygax himself. He says this speaking to the uh, Dungeon Masters. What follows herein is strictly for the eyes of you, the campaign referee. As the creator and ultimate authority in your respective game, this work is written as one Dungeon Master equal to another. Pronouncements there may be, but they are not from, quote, on high, end quote, as respects your game. Dictums are given for the sake of the game only, for if Advanced Dungeons and Dragons is to survive and grow, it must have some degree of uniformity. So here, it sounds a little bit different from in the player's handbook. Gygax is saying, you know, I'm a Dungeon Master, you're a Dungeon Master, I've given these rules here, uh, to, to provide for some level of uniformity within the game, but at the end of the day, you've got to figure out what's going to work for uh, for your game and for your players. I think for a lot of dungeon masters, reading this was probably very freeing, um, especially when rules didn't make sense or maybe they couldn't find something. Uh, to have the very kind of first dungeon master give you the freedom to decide what you're going to do on these rules must have been a really helpful thing. People do it anyway, but <laughs> whether or not you get permission. But I thought that was an interesting uh, choice. On the next page, uh, page 8, he continues on speaking to the DMs, and Mr. Gygax says, As this book is the exclusive precinct of the DM, you must view any non-DM player possessing it as something less than worthy of honorable death. Before I continue on, let me interject there. He doesn't say that the, the character, the player character, is worthy of death. No, he says you must view any non-DM player possessing it as something less than worthy of honorable death. I'll leave that where it is, and I'll move on. Peeping players there will undoubtedly be, but they are, sim they are simply lessening their own enjoyment of the game by taking away some of the sense of wonder that otherwise arises from a game which has rules hidden from participants. It is in your interest, and in theirs, to discourage possession of this book by players. If any of your participants do read herein, it is suggested that you assess them a heavy fee for consulting, quote, sages, end quote, and other sources of information not normally attainable by the inhabitants of your milieu. If they express knowledge which could only be garnered by consulting these pages, a magic item or two could be taken as payment. Insufficient, but perhaps it will tend to discourage such actions. <laughs> so, one of the things that I said after playing 4th edition and moving into other RPGs is that I felt like there was kind of a, a sense of opposition between the Dungeon Masters and the players, um, as though the Dungeon Master was the bad guy and uh, the, the, the players were the good guys. I think that may be by design. You hear this kind of language, um, and it's not that, that Gygax is pitting the, the DM against the players. But it's pretty evident here that the DM is supposed to be the person in charge, the person with the rules, and the person, that, really the judge, the one who's going to punish the players were they to uh, peek into this sacred tome, the Dungeon Master's Guide. On page 110 in the Dungeon Master's Guide, he goes on to talk about um, how to deal with difficult players. And really, it continues to have this sort of sense that in Dungeons & Dragons, the Dungeon Master is God, of course. Granted that Gary is the, the DM of DMs. Uh, we are only demigods of sorts. This is from the section entitled Handling Troublesome Players. Some players will find more enjoyment in spoiling a game than in playing it, 
and this ruins the fun for the rest of the participants, so it must be prevented. Those who enjoy being loud and argumentative, those who pout or act in a childish manner when things go against them, those who use the books as a defense when you rule them out of lying, should be excluded from the campaign. Simply put, ask them to leave or do not invite them to participate again. Peer pressure is another means which can be used to control players who are not totally obnoxious and who you deem worth saving. I'll jump forward a bit. Strong steps short of expulsion can be an extra random monster die, obviously rolled, the attack of an ethereal mummy, which always strikes by surprise naturally. Points of damage from blue bolts from the heavens striking the offender's head, or the permanent loss of a point of charisma, appropriately, from the character belonging to the offender. If these have to be enacted regularly, then they're not effective and stronger measures must be taken. Again, the ultimate answer to such a problem is simply to exclude the disruptive person from further gatherings. On the one hand, there's some pretty sound advice in here about dealing with difficult players. Just ask them not to play. Uh, but <laughs> the passive-aggressive divine uh, DM sending lightning down from the sky or taking away a, a point of charisma fascinating. It's, it, it, it is an approach. I don't know that's the approach I would recommend. But again, I think this starts to give you a sense of Gygax's uh, feeling about uh, Dungeon Masters. I think he affiliated himself with them. I think he appreciated what they were trying to do because he'd done it himself. And, and while, you know, he was the ultimate dungeon master. He tried not to think of himself as superior to other dungeon masters. It'd be fascinating to uh, hear reports from people. I, I haven't, I've read a few, or watched a few interviews, but I haven't heard him talking to other DMs. It'd be curious to see um, how well he related to them, whether or not he did come off as the ultimate dungeon master, or as he says here, really uh, no different from, from any other. But he really seemed to have a heart for the DMs. But that's not to say that he didn't have a heart for the players as well. There are several times uh, throughout his books where he seems to come to the players' defense, even kind of uh, helping them against an over-aggressive uh, dungeon master. So this is back in the Player's Handbook, uh, page 8, very early in the uh, Player's Handbook. He's talking about the rules. He says, this game is unlike chess and that the rules are not cut and dried. We've heard something similar to this already. In many places, there are guidelines and suggested methods only. This is part of the attraction of, of Advanced Dungeons and & Dragons, and it is integral to the game. Rules not understood should have appropriate questions directed to the publisher. Disputes with the Dungeon Master are another affair entirely, or, or another matter entirely. This is all caps. He got ahead of Twitter. The referee is the final arbiter of all affairs of his or her campaign. Back to regular capitalization. Participants in a campaign have no recourse to the publisher, but they do have ultimate recourse, since the most effective protest is withdrawal from the offending campaign. Each campaign is a specially tailored affair. While it is drawn by the referee upon the outlines of the three books which comprise Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, the players add the color and details, so the campaign must ultimately please all participants. It is their unique world. You, the reader, as a member of the campaign community, do not belong if the game seems wrong in any major aspect. Withdraw and begin your own campaign by creating a milieu which suits you and the group which you must form to enjoy the creation. And perhaps you will find that preparation of your own milieu creates a bit more sympathy for the efforts of the offending referee. I think this is really sound advice, and I think it's a good way to deal with uh, difficult players. But I think Gygax isn't just 
serving the, the DM here. I think he's serving the player well, giving them this insight that you don't always have to be a player. And if you don't like it, you can find another group or you can start another group. I think that's actually really good advice uh, for a player who's frustrated with uh, the group that they're playing in. But lest we lest we think he, he really is not defending the player, uh, let me read another section. This is from page 9, the introduction to the Dungeon Master's Guide. So again, he's speaking to the DM. He says this. The final word, then, is the game. Read how and why the system is as it is. Follow the parameters. I'll back up. This is from page 9 in the Dungeon Master's Guide, and he's talking again about rules and how to deal with rules, whether you like them or not. And he says this. The final word, then, is the game. Read how and why the system is as it is. Follow the parameters and then cut portions as needed to maintain excitement. For example, the rules call for wandering monsters, but these can be not only irritating, if not deadly, but the appearance of such can actually spoil a game by interfering with an orderly expedition. He goes on to talk about, you know, if your players have been working their butts off trying to get through this forest and they're doing a good job, don't throw a wandering monster at them. It's going to ruin their fun. Again, his goal here is to provide an enjoyable time for the players. I'll continue reading later in the paragraph. They are willing to accept the hazards of the dice, be it loss of items, wounding, insanity, disease, death, as long as the process is exciting. But lo, every time you throw the monster die, a wandering nasty is indicated, and the party's strength is spent trying to fight their way into the area. Spells expended, battered and wounded, the characters trek back to their base. Expectations have been dashed, and probably interest too, by random chance. Rather than spoil such an otherwise enjoyable time, omit the wandering monsters indicated by the die. No, don't allow the party to kill them easily or escape unnaturally, for that goes contrary to the major precepts of the game. Wandering monsters, however, are included for two reasons, as is explained in the section about them. If a party deserves to have these beasties inflicted upon them, that's another matter. But in the example above, it is assumed that they're doing everything possible to travel quickly and quietly to their planned destination. If you work as a DM, if your work as a DM has been sufficient, the players will have all they can handle upon arrival. So let them get there. Give them a chance. The game is the thing, and certain rules can be distorted or disregarded altogether in favor of play. Know the game systems, and you will know how and when to take upon yourself the ultimate power. And what is the ultimate power but to set aside some of the rules for the fun of the players? Again, he's a defender of the player. <laughs> this game is not just for the DM. It is so that the DM can provide an enjoyable story for the players in which they are having a good time, that they're not just beating their heads against a brick wall of random dice. I think that's fascinating to hear from Gygax. Especially because he seems to be such the king of randomness. As you read through these books and see so many rules on how to randomize things, to hear him say that shows us that at the end of the day, he wanted people to have fun. Um, I, I, I heard a quote from Gygax. I can't find where it's from. It may be a urban legend, but he says something to the effect of the secret that he didn't want, pe want game masters to hear was that they really didn't need rules at all. Um, I understand that there were a number of these rules that Gygax himself didn't follow in his home campaigns. At the end of the day, he wanted a fun time to be had, and I think that's about it. Um, you can see it in these kinds of, of, of statements that he makes in his books. But lest we think he is a, a simpleton, 
thinking only of fun uh, and games. There are moments where a philosophical side of Mr. Gygax comes through. Um, as Daniel Fisher and I talked about in our last podcast, you know, he was a man of faith. Um, he was a Jehovah's Witness for some time and later in life converted to uh, a more kind of orthodox Protestantism. Um, you can see that he thought carefully about human nature and about morality um, in his books. And I think that's where a lot of his alignment stuff came from. But let's, let's dig into this a little bit. So I'm going to go back to the Player's Handbook, page 13. And uh, you wouldn't expect a, a philosophical statement here in the middle of conversation about classes and, and races. But sure enough, here we are, page 13, uh, under the, the section on character races. So he's just uh, listed all the different races that uh, players can uh, play. And it's just one sentence. It says, each racial stock has advantages and disadvantages, although in general, human is superior to the others for reasons you will discover as you read on. It's interesting because when we play fantasy games, uh, it's almost as though we want to escape. We want to be someone who we aren't. We want to experience something we would never experience. We want to fight a metaphorical battle, right? Gary seemed much more interested in being a human. <laughs> I watched an uh, interview with Tim Kask earlier today where he said that, that Gary was really concerned much more with superhuman heroes. He wasn't interested in goblins and orcs and monsters. He was really much more interested in human nature. And what happens when human nature is accelerated and emphasized and made fantastic? Um, and as you look into his other books, you can see hints of the same sort of sentiment. When you look at the monster manual at the beginning, again, you wouldn't expect any kind of philosophical meanderings in the uh, monster manual, but on page five, and this is the fourth gamma printing of the monster manual, the first explanatory note he makes in the book right after the preface is this, that the term monster is used throughout this work in two manners. Its first and most important meaning is to designate any creature encountered, hostile or otherwise, human, humanoid, or beast. Until the encountering party determines what they have come upon, it is a monster. So players, he encourages, to play humans. Yet at the same time, humans are often considered monsters. There's a strange duality in the way he views humanity in these books. Humanity can uh, attain to heroism, to almost divine uh, deific status, and at the same time, man can be uh, base and uh, monstrous even. The Dungeon Master's Guide, the third book of the three, really kind of brings it all together on page 21. It's in a section where he's talking about players who might want to play as a monster, uh, actually be a dragon or a giant or a knoll or something like that. And he says, On occasion, one player or another will evidence a strong desire to operate as a monster, conceiving a playable character as a strong demon, a devil, a dragon, or one of the most powerful sort of undead creatures. This is done principally because the player sees the desired monster character as superior to his or her peers and likely to provide a dominant role for him or her in the campaign. 
A moment of reflection will bring them to the unalterable conclusion that the game is heavily weighted towards mankind. Advanced D&D is unquestionably humanocentric, with demi-humans, semi-humans, and humanoids in various orbits around the sun of humanity. Men are the worst monsters, particularly high-level characters such as clerics, fighters, and magic users. Fascinating that man, given power, ultimately becomes the greatest monster, becomes the one who wields power over all the others. I don't know where exactly Gary was going with all this, but it really lends a very different color to my understanding of the game and my understanding of what he was trying to accomplish. Um, he doesn't come out and say it in these books. I mean, clearly these books seem kind of weighted toward combat and the way the rules play out. But it seems like he was a man who was interested in stories of redemption. He was interested in stories of moral conflict and struggle. Um, I wrote about some of these things on Mad Adventures, uh, I guess maybe a year, year and a half ago. Um, but it's the ethical struggles, it's the moral struggles, it's the human struggles that really seemed to interest Gary. It wasn't just about war, and it wasn't just about slaying the dragon. It was about dealing with the monster that each human has inside themselves. And I find that fascinating. In addition to all of that, Gary does seem to have a pretty, despite all the neutral alignments, he does seem to have a pretty uh, clear view of morality um, that's reflected in in character creation when he does talk about those alignments. I'm going to turn over to the player's handbook again, pages 26 and 27, um, where we see the thief, who is the first character class that gets limited to certain um, alignments. On page 27 it says, the profession of thief is not dishonorable, albeit is neither honorable nor highly respected in some quarters. All thieves are neutral or evil, although they can be neutral good, rarely, and of lawful or chaotic nature. Most thieves tend towards evil. I'll go on to page 28, where he talks about assassins in a very similar fashion. Assassins are evil in alignment, perforce as the killing of humans and other intelligent life forms for the purpose of profit is basically held to be the antithesis of weal, W-E-A-L, for those who aren't reading it off the page. He seemed very interested in this whole idea of humanity. Where are they headed? Where are they headed ethically? Where are they headed morally? And what are the decisions that your own choices, um, or, and where do your own choices, choices send you in terms of your future and your ethics? It seems to, it seems to me that he would not prefer to be an assassin in real life. I doubt that any of you would either, but, um, I just find that to be an interesting addition to our understanding of, of Gary. Um, he was, yes, the ultimate dungeon master. He was the defender of the player, but he was also a bit of a philosopher himself. But at the end of the day, he was a game designer as well. And so there are moments, <laughs> moments, where he almost seems like an apologist. He kind of gets ahead of his critics before they have a chance to speak. It's almost like he sees the holes in his own system, and so he wants to cut them off the pass. I want to draw attention to just two of those in the player's handbook. Uh, the first one I actually find really helpful, not just for 
Dungeons and Dragons, but for every <laughs> every RPG uh, that I play, uh, wherein uh, hit points grow over time. So on page 34 in the Player's Handbook, there's a whole section on character hit points. It says this. Each character has a varying number of hit points, just as monsters do. These hit points represent how much damage, actual or potential, the character can withstand before being killed. A certain amount of these hit points represent the actual physical punishment which can be sustained. The remainder, a significant portion of hit points at higher levels, stands for skill, luck, and or magical factors. A typical man-at-arms can take about five hit points of damage before being killed. Let us suppose that a 10th level fighter has 55 hit points, plus a bonus of 30 hit points for his constitution for a total of 85 hit points. This is the equivalent of about 18 hit dice for creatures, about what it would take to kill four huge war horses. It is ridiculous to assume that even a fantastic fighter could take that much punishment. Thus, the majority of hit points are symbolic of combat, or combat skill, luck bestowed by supernatural powers, and magical forces. Gary basically says, look guys, I know it's ridiculous that that fighter has 85 hit points. I know that doesn't make a lick of sense because that's the same as killing, what, four war horses, and that's insane. So he says you got to think differently about these hit points. It's not just health. It's not just, uh, you know, cuts. He didn't, he didn't die from 85 cuts. No, he's expending combat skill. He's expending energy. The whole combat process is wearing him out. He, he has greater stamina than the others on the playing field. And that actually makes a lot of sense. And that's helpful, I think, to explain why your characters do last as long as they do as they level up. So Gary's kind of getting ahead of where people might criticize the system already. Perhaps people had criticized earlier versions of Dungeons and Dragons. I don't know that. But to me, that seems uh, he's thoughtful. And he, and he realizes what people are going to say before uh, they even say it. Now, for one of the issues on which Mr. Gygax does get very uh, criticized um, is the question of, of female characters uh, being limited in their strength. Um, on page 9 in the player's handbook, there is a table. And it's the only time it's mentioned. It's the strength table number 1, where it shows the ability scores for strength, and it shows where different uh, classes and, and races max out at strength. For example, uh, number 16 is the maximum strength possible for a female elf character. Then you have 18 is the maximum strength possible for all non-fighter characters. And then 18 slash 1 to 50 is the maximum strength possible for a female human or male gnome character. Understandably, uh, I think for women, wanting, or for anyone wanting, wanting to play a female character, that can be frustrating that somewhat arbitrarily it seems as though women have been deemed ultimately uh, not as strong as men, or at least as strong as male gnomes. See, that's the thing about it. it, it it's bad enough that you say the female characters can't have a strength above this level, but then when you put them next to male gnomes, I mean, <laughs> gnomes are what we put in our yards now. It's just a little bit diminishing and a little bit demeaning. So I can appreciate frustration with this. Gary, clearly no idiot. You may disagree with me after hearing those quotes. Clearly no idiot. In the intro, not even in the introduction, in the preface to this book, says this. You will find no pretentious dictums herein. 
No baseless limits arbitrarily placed on female strength or male charisma. You'll find material which enables the dungeon master to conduct a campaign which is challenging, where the unexpected is the order of the day, and much of what takes place has meaning and reason within the framework of the game world. I don't know, Gary, you're pushing it, man. <laughs> because he specifically says there's no baseless limits arbitrarily placed on female strength. Well, there are limits placed on female strength. And then he says, or male charisma. Oddly, when you look at the charisma table, there is no limit placed on male charisma. Uh, I don't know, man. Uh, I understand that, that you say that there's a there's reasoning for it, there's meaning in it, but I can totally appreciate the people who house rule this and say... Female characters can have as high uh, a level as they want uh, within the, the scope of their race. So uh, a female gnome can be just as strong as a male gnome. A female human can be just as strong as a male human. Um, the bottom line, the point I'm trying to make, regardless of your view on, on, on Guy Gax's decision here, is that he knew what he was doing. Um, and he tried to cut it off at the pass. I'd be curious to know when this game first came out, how many people were actually offended or frustrated by that, or how many people even noticed it. There's so many tables in here. Character creation. Character creation is actually a really fun process, and I'm going to write about that for Thursday, but um, it's easy to miss stuff like that. And, and as I've talked to friends who played back in the day, they really didn't follow all these rules. They kind of had a few rules they used to get the character together. Regardless, Gygax knew... There was a possible kickback here, and he tried to get ahead of the game, but I don't know they did a great job. Not every apologist is great at what they're doing. But see, he wasn't just an apologist. He was also opinionated. And I want to look at one opinion of his that explains probably the hurt feelings of, of many grieving players. And it's on page 25 in the Player Handbook under the section, The Magic User. It really doesn't seem that Gary had much love for the magic user. You'll remember that he already said that clerics, fighters, and magic users at the highest levels become the greatest monsters. Uh, no comment on, 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 on mad clerics, of course. Under a section on the magic user, he says this, while magic users are not strong in combat with weapons, they are possibly the most fearsome of all character classes when high levels of ability are finally attained. Survival to that point can be a problem, however, as low-level magic users are quite weak. <laughs> I watched another interview with Tim Cask today talking about magic users and how Gary really didn't have any particular love for them. But at the same time, there is a sense of balance here. Um, if they are the most powerful at high levels, well, it must be very hard to get there. Uh, but Gary makes his, his opinion quite clear here that they're weak. They're intended to be weak, and they're probably going to die. So if you really want to be a magic user, he doesn't know why you'd want to be one. They're practically monsters anyway. But if you're going to be one, just prepare to die and roll up another one and die and roll up another one and die. Gary has his opinions, and he's entitled to them. After all, he is the ultimate dungeon master, and he's the guy that wrote the book. You don't like it? You go start your own game group, write your own game book. <laughs> I don't think he was a vindictive man. I, I, I feel like he's a pretty good-natured guy. Uh, but I find it very, very humorous. Last, uh, this was probably the thing that grabbed me the most um, on my first read-through, The Dungeon Master's Guide. I've read it twice now. Um, Gary 
and this goes back to kind of him being the ultimate dungeon master, he really just, he, he made this game for fun, and he had fun with it, and he tried stuff that didn't work, and he tossed it, and he tried other stuff that did work, and so in these rules, occasionally he gives a rule um, to, to help dungeon masters out. He said, yeah, this may work for you, it might not work for you, it works uh, for my home group. And uh, this one just jumped out at me. It's really kind of neat. Um, on page 9 of the Dungeon Master's Guide. Sorry, I have my, I grabbed my player's handbook instead. He has a, a really neat section on dice, uh, beginning on, verse, uh, on, on uh, page 9. But then going on to page 10, um, he says this. He says, the author has a d6, talking about himself, with the following faces. Spade, club, club, diamond, diamond, heart. If, during an encounter, players meet a character whose reaction is uncertain, the card suit die is rolled in conjunction with 3d6. Black suits mean dislike, with the spade equaling hate, while red equals like, the heart being great favor. So basically you've got a 1 and a 6, 1 being hate, 6 being love, and then your 4, 5, and your 2, 3 show like and, and dislike. But he uses card suits, which is kind of cool. I'm fine with that. Um, the 3d6 give a bell-shaped probability curve of 3 to 18, with 9 to 12 being the mean spread. Spade 18 means absolute and unchangeable hate, while heart 18 indicates the opposite. Clubs or diamonds can be altered by discourse, rewards, etc. Thus, clubs 12 could possibly be altered to clubs 3 by offer of a tribute or favor. Clubs 3 change to diamonds 3 by a gift, etc. In closing this discussion, simply keep in mind that the dice are your tools. Learn to use them properly, and they will serve you well. I like this. I'm actually going to try this in uh, in my first uh, campaign. I don't know if I'm going to do the 3D6 with it, but I like the, the whole suits there. But at the end of the day, he was a playtester. He wrote the game, but he was a playtester too, and he tried some stuff and he liked it, and other stuff he didn't like, and he tossed it out. And I have a hard time believing he really used all of these rules himself. I mean, <laughs> I don't know that anybody could keep track of them. But I find that to be really cool. He found something that worked for him, and it seems like he encourages DMs to do the same. At the end of the day, Gary Gygax seems like he was a really neat guy. It's a shame that uh, he didn't have more years on this earth to game and to pass on his gaming to others. But at the end of the day, we still have these books, and as we read these books, we get a piece of him, and we learn something not only of him and his games, but the world he created, and really what he thought of gaming and where he wanted gaming to go. Um, I've, I'm very sympathetic to those, uh, well, not sympathetic, but, but uh, I'm fine with people playing 5th edition, um, but I'm really kind of fascinated to delve into Advanced Simpsons Dragons and to experience uh, Mr. Gygax's world uh, in his own writing and in his own voice and with his own very distinct tone. I'm enjoying getting to know him. And if you've never read the Dungeon Master's Guide or the Player's Handbook or any of these other uh, AD&D resources, I really would recommend you check them out. They're a lot of fun to read, especially the Player's Handbook. I really can't go on enough about how much I've loved reading that book. It is such a good book. You can get a PDF copy on uh, drivethroughrpg.com. You can get them on eBay. Uh, you can get them on Amazon. The reprints they are they're a little more expensive, but I mean, the cheapest on DriveThruRPG. Just great, great resources. So I'd encourage you to read it. Meet Mr. Gygax this year. Read it tomorrow on his birthday. I think that'd be a really cool way to remember his birthday. 
and uh, and give it a shot. Um, my first game is coming up next week. I'm really excited about it. You'll get a full report. Uh, but I think if you'll delve into Gygax's work, you'll get a new appreciation for him, uh, for role-playing, and for advanced Dungeons & Dragons. But until next time, my friends, keep on chasing that dragon. song it's by the great band lame drivers you can check out their music at lamedrivers.com